Welcome everyone. We're so, so happy that you're here. And we'll welcome people who join us. Um, we're, like I said, we're videotaping this tonight and uh, a copy will be up on YouTube and there may be pieces that HDS uses as well for, uh, for the website. Um, I'm so thrilled to introduce you to uh, a friend and colleague, Cornelia Holden. Uh, Cornelia and I met at Harvard Divinity School when we were both getting our Master of Divinity. And that was now almost 20 years ago. And we've been talking on and off um, since then. And whenever Cornelia was on campus, we would find each other and get together and get the updates on the work that she was doing and the, the things that I was doing here as well. So it's just such a joy to actually have you on campus. And really appreciate how generous you are uh, with us, with your time and with um, the students tonight and tomorrow as well. So, um, so by way of introduction, um, Cornelia Holden, this is how I'd like to describe her. She's a healer, she's an educator, she's a mom to the lovely Zulika, seven years old, um, a partner and a spouse. And she's also an entrepreneur and is innovating in the spaces of secondary education, leadership development. Um, she's in educational settings as well as professional settings doing this very deep transformational work that is um, mind and body centered, embodied work, helping people to show up more courageously in their individual settings, to show up more authentically, and to also build the skills for resilience uh, under pressure. She helps people make uh, values-driven decisions um, in pressured times, which as we know, just kind of living in this culture right now, in this particular time is pressure driven. <laughs> and uh, we could all use some more tools to be more resilient, um, more authentic, and uh, more loving, quite honestly, in these various settings that we show up in. And we wanted to bring her here tonight for the first ministry colloquium of this academic year. Um, because she's really innovating in these spaces, what we would like to call innovation in ministry. So I see her work with young people uh, and with um, athletes and corporate clients as a, a real innovation, um, a real pioneer in work that is, um, again, body-centered, mindful, using neuroscience to back up her work uh, with these various folks. Um, so we're excited to have her to talk about what it looks like. How do you pioneer something after you graduate? Is it a straight line? Uh, is it more winding? Um, what do you do when you fail? How do you pick yourself back up again and iterate uh, the services that you offer? So um, we're excited to have this conversation with her. And would you add anything to your bio that I left out? Or it'll come out it'll over, come out. it'll come out. I thought we would um, use this format, kind of an, an interview um, format. So I'll be asking some questions, but there'll be plenty of time for conversation and for questions at the end. I know some of you have already shared with me some of the questions that you'd like to ask Cornelia, and uh, we can go from there. So, um, so shall I get started? Yeah. So um, you graduated with your MDiv in 2003 right. and founded Mindful Warrior in 2004. Yeah. Um, but imagine that there was a lot of things that have happened um, since before you got to, 
to HDS, and since you've graduated to um, this time with the core leadership program and Mindful Warrior. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey and your ministry and how it's evolved over time? Sure. Well, thank you all so much for coming. It's incredible to be back. I landed in New York about a week ago, and it dawned on me um, I'm five generations in the same home. And, um, and I just recently, three years ago, moved to California. And I think I'm very place-based. I'm very I'm an embodied, place-based person. And so I couldn't leave California for three years because I couldn't, I needed to find my feet beneath me. So when I landed in New York, I realized I hadn't been on my home soil in three years. And, uh, and I was thinking about um, what Terry had said about being away from Utah and the ability to see it from this vantage point. And so this was the first time I had sort of seen my home space from a vantage point of spending three years away. So it's an incredible thing actually to be back. And when I, when I was here 15 years ago, obviously with a seven-year-old, I, I, I obviously didn't have a seven-year-old then, or I didn't have a child then. So to come back as a mother, this is the first time I've ever been here as a mother. And so all of those pieces feel really important to me. And also just looking at two of my students, uh, one who's flown in from Minneapolis to be here today, thank you, and one who's come in from New Hampshire. And you know that, I think, for all of us to do work in the world where our, we grow together. Um, and support each other is pretty remarkable. So I feel a lot of love and a lot of warmth and a lot of connection just being here. Um, and maybe that's a really great way of saying, I, I think in, in a lot of way my journey went from, uh, I was an individual sport, very serious ski racing athlete. And um, I, th I, was, I, th you know, I was raised by a really loving pa parents. Um, at the same time, I don't think I felt the kind of radical relationality that I feel now, um, both to myself and my spirituality, to the people I'm really close to, and also then to the natural world. I think I always felt the natural world was a really important place for me, but uh, I would say that my spiritual journey really, um, I think Harvard was the place where I discovered, I discovered God. I came here an atheist. I think that's an interesting part of the journey, if any of you are interested in that. I was a um, very committed atheist. And, uh, and then um, somebody, I think the piece I'll say, and if, you, if this interests you, ask, but the piece I will say is that somebody at some point at Harvard, first of all, I looked around and I was like, there are a lot of smart people here who are like, who think like God's real. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was number one. And number two, somebody said to me, you know, all relationships take time, and um, even God. And so uh, in my second year here, I took four, I took three classes instead of four and gave that extra three hours a week to this thing called God and said, okay, if you exist, find me, I'll, I'll, I'll answer. But I, so that's a long story and, a, and I think a really beautiful one. So I guess for me, the, the journey has been um, in sort of sh to collapse a long journey into a few things. It went from being very individual, focused and centered and goal oriented and high achieving and uh, individual sport and all that kind of thing um, to a real radical relationality. And that journey was not pretty. <laughs> um, and it was not easy. And, uh, and I did a lot of the falling apart and the this, this struggle and the exploration here. And I didn't know I even needed to do that journey. 
in truth. Um, but fortunately, there were people here, and there were books, and there were professors, and there were people both on-site and off-site who uh, helped me to discover that formation is real, um, that relationships with, um, with the seen and the unseen can be really remarkable and can be a source of uh, strength and nourishment, clarity in, in hard times and in good times. So that's part of the journey. There's a lot to say, but you know, we'll start there. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so how did you know, or did you know, while you were here that you would set off and be an entrepreneur, uh, to be an innovator and uh, in some of the areas? I think I was, I think I've been an entrepreneur since I was really little. So I started working, I don't, often people say like, I started working and I know the age. I don't remember the age probably because I started working when I was really little. My parents, like, the first gift my parents gave my husband was like a pair of work gloves. Like we're hardworking people. Like you, you rake the lawn and you clean and we're New Englanders, you know, we work. And, uh, and so I think I just grew up, you know, working. I worked on the land, you know, and I, I had, a, I mowed lawns and raked leaves and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I always had my own um, little businesses. So from the time I can remember, that for some reason that mattered to me. Um, I, I, I don't know why exactly. Maybe um, I thought it mattered to, I think I, from the time I was little, I had this sense that independence mattered. You know, that um, I wasn't going to rely on, you know, I see you nodding. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to rely on, probably on a man, in truth. Um, and I was going to figure out how to find my way. Um, so that mattered to me. I, I, and then even when I got here, I had this, I don't know if you all have this feeling, but I remember being here and thinking, I got the greatest freaking birth ever. Like, like if there's reincarnation, like I got it. Like I can sit in these libraries and read these sacred texts and nobody's bothering me and I have a credit card and I can purchase things and I didn't even have much money, but like my mom didn't have a credit card. Like just remember, like it wasn't that long ago women didn't have credit cards and couldn't get them in their names, right? So I just felt this radical sense of like, wow, I have access. You know, and I and I can and I can read stuff and um, do stuff, and nobody can tell me otherwise. And I've just enough money to kind of make it all go. And even through divinity school, I worked. You know, I I, I became a massage therapist right after um, I graduated from college, and that meant I knew that I would make a better hourly rate than than other jobs I could get, and that was a blessing because it actually became a huge piece of my ministry. Can you say a little bit more about your own journey here at HCS? You mentioned a little bit about like of the falling apart and the yeah. healing that you needed to do here, yeah. and how that's connected. Um, you know, Cornelia shared with me, and I had forgotten part of her history is that she had a very serious skiing accident and ended up with a uh, traumatic brain injury. Right. And so there was a long healing process that went along with that. Right. So I was curious how that yeah. um, fit into the, the story. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so a couple things. I, I think I, I arrived here with a traumatic brain injury. I, I sustained it at age 21, and I got here when I think I was about 27 as a grad student. And, um, and so I'd had six years of sort of healing, but not really. Um, and what I mean by that is that traumatic brain injuries back when I had them in 1996, if you looked fine, you were fine. And there was nothing, I mean, I didn't get an MRI. There was no, I mean, I couldn't walk for six weeks. It happened in Europe. Only one person saw it. My parents, I could still speak. 
um, but there wasn't the kind of knowledge that we have now. And so, you know, I think I got, I, the, the relevance there is that I got here and was high functioning, except I was really broken in, in, from a central nervous system perspective. Um, and I've always been a high functioner. I think a lot of us here are. You know, we can put on a good face in a lot of different situations. And, uh, and I knew how to do that, and I was going to do that, because darn it, I wanted to go somewhere. I didn't want to wallow in my pain or my sadness or my sorrow or my confusion. Um, and even when I got here, I had a plan. Like, I was going to be the next Bill Moyers. I don't know if you guys know who Bill Moyers is, but I was going to be him, because I was going to be her. And I was going to interview people. I was interested in identity and formation and meaning making and stories. And you know, I just I loved what he did, eliciting depth from people that he interviewed. And then he came to the Center for World Religions, or wherever he came, in my, my second year here. And I met him. And he said he was going to create a sister film, and he couldn't get the funding. And I'm thinking, who, like, what? I was so naive. I thought, you know, you get, you were excellent at what you do. You make money, and it's all good. Well, you know, we all know what we all know about filmmaking. It's not maybe now, but then it was different. And so he said, well, um, you know, in other words, I came with a plan. Bill Moyers basically said, I hope you have a trust fund. I said, I don't. He said, well, then you need a job, and um, and you better figure it out. But being a filmmaker is not going to pay your bills. So I had come here to be a filmmaker. And even that was like weird for people. They're like, why'd you go to divinity school to be a filmmaker? I'm like, well, because I want to learn how to have the depth. I'll figure out the technical stuff. I want the depth. I want to explore really in important questions. So I came to Harvard an atheist, certain that there was no God. I came here certain that I was going to be you know, a filmmaker, meet the guy that I want to be who's like, good luck. And I, I go running back to Dudley Rose and say, like, I'm I don't, who am I? Like, what am I doing? And by the way, I have this brain injury, and I have you know, pain in my head. And anyway, we all have our stories, right? And we get to Divinity School with a plan, or we get anywhere with a plan. We have a kid, and we have a plan. What, whatever our plans are, you know? And at some point in our lives, they, they get, they get um, jumbled up. And this, for me, was a really great place to be confused, and I've said that before, but you know this really is. And I and I said to you earlier, you know, especially from a neuroscientific perspective now, like I really think that all of our brains have been trained on fear. That's just the deal. Like there is no parent around who knows how to train you from something called trust, really, truly, very rarely. And so, and then we live in a culture that's and it's and it's just getting amplified. So. What I call our business as usual brain is we arrive with a lot of fear and it, we get triggered into fight, flight, or freeze, and then we build neural pathways, and then we make decisions from that place. And so what I said to Laura earlier is, look, all of us have got to retrain our brains. But that process, having been through it, is really gnarly because the process of pulling out old habits is, means that you're going to kind of unplug old neural pathways. And when you unplug them, they don't re-up right away you actually go through what I'm calling right now like a limbo brain. And you're kind of in this like liquid, not knowing, confused place. And I find that with the identity work that we do here at the Divinity School, I think it's, you know, I was running over the business school, taking classes there, and some of you at JFK and at the law school, and wherever you are, 
they're not, the depth of the, the identity work done at Harvard Divinity School, I don't think is happening anywhere else. And this is really important right now. Um, and so a lot of us, at least those of us, I think, you know, trying to do that kind of work can find ourselves in a place where we, we go from a lot of certainty to a lot of not knowing. And that not knowing for me is where healing is possible and where transformation is possible. But that process is actually needs midwifery and you know I think of the professors here as midwives and I think of you and Dudley and you know a lot of what happens here and some of these spaces the natural is part of our midwife and you know all of our classmates I mean we're all doing excuse me doing it with each other but that process takes time to, to before you know now where am I what to toward what am I going to build my being my heart and my mind and, uh, and to me, this is, you know, this is the work I like to do with corporate people even. It's like, I was over at the business school. They're doing case studies. That's important work, but it's not like purpose-driven. It's not, what's the vision of our company and why? And how am I gonna tell you as my employee over and over to keep showing up for 70 hours a week to work for me or this company if I can't help you understand why this is part of, you know, a value towards something bigger than yourself and towards something bigger that we could all create in the world together. And I think that type of work takes the kind of downtime, even though it doesn't feel like downtime at Divinity School, but there's a kind of quality of self-interrogation, I believe, I know I did here, and that allows for that limbo place to happen. And then you begin to start in that space to see a vision. You know, but it emerges organically from inside, from an embodied self, from a healthy, stable nervous system that's not panicked and scared. And I think that's the promise of divinity schools, is that kind of space and place to, um, to have the spaciousness to not know. It's a privilege. Have others experienced that de deconstructive period as students here? I know I did. Yeah, I can, I can relate to this uh, very deeply. It's actually a good segue into the work that you're doing now. Mm -hmm. What's the midwifery? What's the ministry that's happening yeah. um, under your leadership with uh, Mindful Warrior and Core Leadership Program California? Can you, yeah. can you share a little bit of the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly speaking, probably what I just said is what I'm doing all over the country to anybody who, you know, some people don't know they need to do this work. And so that's what's really interesting is for a long time, I was doing this work and there wasn't really a market for it because people didn't even know they could do this or that it even mattered or that there was even training. Um, so that's been part of the innovation and the courage, I guess, and the fortitude I've had to have is to keep going. Um, you know, I, uh, the reason mindfulwarrior.com is my URL is because mindful didn't even mean anything to people 20 years ago and now everybody is mindful everything, you know. So, um, so uh, part of it was helping people understand what could be. So there's been a lot of education in my work. Uh, and, then, and then, happily, there are a lot of people that I'm meeting, especially in the educational sectors, especially in social justice circles, where people are really already doing a lot of identity work and know what's possible, but need um, the support and need other peers and need um, a place to do it, uh, to, to explore and to be midwifed and to do it in a collective setting. So then I'm doing that in schools. Um, in my corporate work, uh, I think I was fighting more of a fight probably here in New England to help 
corporate people understand this. I mean, I got picked up, I think, within a few months of moving to California by one of the top private wealth management firms in the country because it's California. And I mean, he happens to be from Boston. <laughs> but you know, I think people in California, there's a different consciousness out there about what's possible. He liked my performance background and that kind of thing and knew that this combination would help. Uh, he just somehow intuitively understood that um, doing work to help people uh, transform their egos. I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, that's the kind of the work I'm doing with 40-year-old you know, ex-hockey players who are now in private wealth management is, you know, how do you actually stabilize your attention in a way and fill your being with awareness so that you can be a better manager and a better visionary and a, and a better listener? Um, how do you pay attention and that kind of thing? And then build something, um, you know, that people actually want to participate in. And you're not just feeling like all your employees are a widget, you know, which is I think a lot of employees feel like they're just one more widget in the system. And so, um, so I guess, you know, I'm working in three areas. One is helping people understand that there's, there is, this work exists and it matters and it's worth your time and energy and money. The second one is the people who already know that to be true and building brave spaces for them to collaborate. And the third is, um, you know, people who do know it's possible and do want to spend money on it and are hiring. So tell me, do you mind like drilling down? So you're working with this 40-year-old ex-hockey yeah. player who's built this wealth management company. Yeah. Are you working individually with him? And what does that look like? Is it highly individual work? Mm -hmm. Is it meditation training? Is it feeling mm -hmm. in the body? Is it gathering people in circles in an office setting? What, is right. it, what does it look like? Um, well, it started uh, specifically, you know, he hired me to be his performance coach. That's what it's called now. Even more than executive coach, I like to call it performance coaching. And uh, he just said, I want, you, I want you to do a number of different things with me. I think partly he needed a, he needed a safe place where he could um, actually just get off what was on the top of his head. I'm very organized. And so I end up sort of facilitating his thinking. Um, so that's been one piece of the work. Um, second of all, it's been as he's had to educate me on his sector and his business. Uh, I've really helped him think through some systems about how that he could be doing things uh, in a way that's innovative in a sector that's actually very old school and not innovative. Private wealth management's not very innovative at all. It hasn't needed to be. I mean, historically, it's been money comes and more money comes and you just kind of manage money. Um, and I think as uh, there's been, I mean, partly uh, he'd like to innovate, and, though he doesn't have to, but I think he's interested in what, what is innovation and what does it mean to actually grow as a person and then how do you grow a team. Mm -hmm. So at first started I was working with him and then he introduced me to his C-suite and he, I think he felt safe enough working with me that then he asked me to work with them. And then the work with them was partly an off, run their offsites, and then I also um, like trainings yep. or retreats. Yeah, and or, I really facilitate not really trainings, but I really what I try to do is keep alive humanity in the workplace. I mean, I really help people tell stories in the workplace. Um, so it's a combination. We call it in schools when I do it. I help people do school keeping and team keeping. So it's like, you know, um, in the corporate setting, it's like they need to do the work of, of their, you know, their industry. But doing the work of their industry without doing any of the team keeping means that you end up really just treating each other 
again, like widgets. Like you get annoyed more quickly with each other. You, um, don't, you because you don't really know each other's story. You don't know what is going on. Why somebody's been regularly late to a meeting? Because their their child is autistic, and there's been you know like you don't you just don't know. You, there's no humanity. There's no story inside the workplace, and so. Not everybody can set aside, I'm not talking about hours, but enough that you know, hey, Laura, I got your back. I know what you're going through. And I don't, but, but that kind of, you know, cre cre creating that space, right? So that's one piece of the work. And, um, and then another piece of the work is, um, I don't know if any of you have read A New Earth, but I really like Eckhart Tolle's work. And I've helped just bring, I mean, that's a pretty spiritual text into a very sort of traditional workplace and helping people understand what is an ego, how do, how do you even understand what that is, and then how you might be able to stabilize awareness so that you're not making decisions solely out of an ego place. That's trippy spiritual work in a pretty traditional Silicon Valley corporate space, but that's been very helpful. And the reason they're interested in it is because it reduces reactivity in the workplace. And, and it allows for more fluidity, more collaboration, more teamwork. And, uh, and then lastly, it's then helping from that level um, to kind of spread it throughout the associate level. And so a lot of the young people are in their 20s and interested in, you know, the 20-somethings are really interested in this work. But the 40-somethings don't really know what they're, you know, so it's helping bridge that gap between the millennials who are the new hires and the people my age who are hiring them. The older people. The older, we're getting there. <laughs> How about with young people, these young leaders that you're working with and training them for like long-term sustained uh, spiritual growth mm -hmm. or tough social justice yeah. work? Yeah. You know, what does that look like at um, the two-week intensives that you do with them, at school, in school settings? What Cornelia also does in school settings is help to transform culture for um, the administrators, for the faculty, and for the staff kind of around this humanizing uh, the work uh, of running a school, but also um, transforming them in such a way that they can hold the space for these young people who are extremely powerful in having these transformative experiences. Yeah. Can you say a little bit, you know, what does that sure. specifically look like? And I know you have a couple of Right. students who have been through your programs yeah. before. Um. Well, I think even, let me just say something really briefly, just sort of philosophically about what I'm doing, and then I can, or, or why, and then, and then the how. So the why is what I sort of said earlier, which is we're building our institute, we're, we're raising children and we're building institutions off of fear, full stop, right? Because basically, the limbic system and the reptilian brain, the deepest parts of our brain, is the oldest. So it's the, in a way, the, the it's the goalie. <laughs> it's, the, it's what we're used to using, you know? The prefrontal cortex, where we can have rational thinking, cognitive thinking, higher order values-driven thinking, is much newer. And so I think as a species, we're at this really interesting evolutionary moment, and I don't know if we're gonna make it. And I think what we need to do is build a bridge between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. So the first, and primary relationship that we all need to build is in our own brains. And, um, and so why? Because we cannot any longer afford to be raising children or building institutions out of fear. Because what it means is we're all plugged into this idea of scarcity. We're all plugged into this idea that it's a win-lose 
um, battle for resources that are finite. And while resources may or may not be finite, there's a lot of thinking about whether they actually are or not. Um, the point is, is that if we're, we know, what we have shown, I think, as a species, is that if we continue building everything out of sort of a fight, flight, freeze, limbic system, reactive, everything's a tiger and it's gonna get me. First of all, we all know, because we're all suffering from it, we're all adrenally fatigued, we're all tired, um, and it's, it's uh, and, but, but our systems are exhausting our, us and, uh, and our planet. And uh, so th that's my big picture meta statement. Okay, so what, am I, what are we gonna do about that? So what I, I'm interested in is um, how we're gonna build systems that are fundamentally, radically connected to trust. And trust is possible when you can engage the prefrontal cortex. And if any of you have studied with like Dan Siegel, who I, whose work I really like, he talks really about like, if you think about the brain like this, like this is your brain, this part is your limbic system, the animal instinctual brain, and this part is the prefrontal cortex. When we get scared and when we um, are under pressure, we, we do what's called flipping our lid. We just function out of this part of our brain. <laughs> and we, a lot of us are doing it even when we're making very serious decisions with multi-billion dollar budgets um, or you know, running countries or running schools or whatever we're doing. We're functioning out of this portion of our brain. And so what we need to be doing is keeping this prefrontal cortex engaged because that's the rational brain that allows us to actually have higher order values in mind as we decide to make decisions. Okay, so that's fundamental to what we're teaching children 15 to 19. Everything I'm even doing in the corporate sector, that's part of what I'm training them to on. Okay, one more thing just philosophically. Once you keep your prefrontal cortex engaged, then you have to decide toward what? What is your true north? Toward what are we, where are we going? So for me, I've leaned into five core values. And the five are safety, respect, belonging, inclusion, and trust. Here's how I think about it. Um, when you function out of a place of radical fear, um, you can, uh, it's really difficult to have higher order thinking and higher and any other value besides your own physical safety, basically, right? And so, um, when so so you're functioning out of fear, and because you're functioning out of fear, you're turning a lot of other things into other. The tiger, the person who doesn't believe what you believe, the person who looks different from you. You can create a lot of othering because fear divides, and it needs to. It's efficient. But again, long-term, big picture, we can't be functioning out of that. So um, the opposite of othering is belonging in my, in my books. And what we need is a radical re-upping of what belonging actually looks like and feels like. So belonging for us and the way we teach it is first you've got to come into a, a relationship, like I said, between the prefrontal cortex and your animal brain. That's a, that's a relationship and then a relationship into your body. I can't tell you how many kids I sit with. We have 36 kids every summer, and I say, how many of you feel just basically home in your own body by a raise of hands? What do we get? Three, four hands up, maybe. Okay, that's an epidemic. People are, people, we are living in a traumatized world where a lot of us are dissociated and hovering somewhere over here. Because it, first of all, for a lot of us, hasn't been safe to be home here. Um, and and or some people have had very little connection to their bodies. For Maybe it's been safe, but they just 
they feel like, you know what, I've got, you know, they say, we say this, I've been around a lot of Ivy Leagues, you know, it's an expensive brain being transported around, right? <laughs> but, you know, that's not true. The brain actually, through the spinal cord, is in the body. We need to be in our bodies and we need to be connected to the earth. And that's, a belo that's belonging, learning how to come back home to our bodies. So other uh, belonging and inclusion are two of these core values. And then how many of us live in organizations where safety is upheld? I mean, I don't know. Nobody. I mean, that's the whole Me Too situation, right? There is no safety. And when there's no safety, there's probably very little respect, right? So we ha we're already living in organizations where safety and respect are broken, where we're not feeling a connection to Earth or to the heavenly realm, and this feeling of belonging through our bodies, that connection is the belonging. And inclusion is about really having a mindset that's open to you know, seeing beyond what we want to see. You know, taking off our blinders, looking at our bias, expanding our awareness so that we can make decisions that see a broader picture rather than just, you know, a piece of the picture. So the, when you practice safety and respect, and I call that the horizontal realm, right? And you practice inclusion and belonging on what I would call the vertical axis, what arises organically is trust. So you don't actually have to do trust. What you have to do is build organizations that take seriously everybody's safety and respect boundaries and take that just start there you know and schools are not doing this uh, you know governments aren't doing this nobody very few people are doing that and then you really have to we have to do the mental work of learning how to stabilize our minds so that we can have a, a, an ability to see more broadly turn towards suffering rather than just say I'm only going to look at what I want to see and make decisions out of that exclusive mindset no I'm going to learn how to have an inclusive mindset and see stuff that I don't really want to see um, that's an important leadership quality and then being grounded all those things lead to the opposite of the fear that we're talking about. So that I had to say to you because I can't tell you why I build this organization until you understand the problem that I see and the solution that we see. And so what have we done? We've said, because of all that, the three most important things are a relationship with self, other, and nature. So the relationship with self is really about two things. One is understanding the neural wiring in your brain from what I just talked about, from that animal instinctual to the cognitive, building and hold, really engaging that. And number two is we, we do a really cool talk on the difference between the authentic self and the performative self. Um, and I, won't, I can talk about that at some point. But, but those two things, what does it mean to build a real relationship in your brain and a real relationship to your authentic self? What is an authentic self? How do you build that relationship? That's the self part. The interpersonal is how do we learn how to listen in a way that doesn't, um, you know, only, you know, I like to think about holding wide open oceanic space around somebody when they're speaking, right? You can feel the quality when somebody's just listening for what they want to hear and then maybe about to attack you, or they just want to listen to what they want to hear. is very different than the quality and types of listening I think we're taught here at the Divinity School. Um, so that's that interpersonal, and I think listening, you know, there are many things we teach, but I would say listening is a key one. And then lastly, we've got to reconnect to the natural world. We are profoundly disconnected. And, um, and so um, because those are three pillars of what we do, connected to those five core values, 
Um, what do we actually do? We spend time in the classroom doing the work with self and other. We spend time in nature, in the ocean, swimming. We've got kids who've never swum before. Uh, we have young people who are surfers. But it doesn't matter, you know, getting in and letting that ocean wash over you, being part of something much bigger and much more radical and that can kill you, but that can also liberate you is a very important experience for all of us to have. And then lastly, we live in the dorm together in order to learn how to build community and figure out whose toothpaste needs to get cleaned off the sink and why somebody did that in the, in the you know, whatever it is, why your pizza is all over my plate. And, you know, learning how to, like, that's where the messiness is when we come into community. And so we spend two weeks doing those kinds of things. And that's um, embedded in our programs for students age 15 to 19. Can you see what an educator she is? I mean, just like natural teacher. And you've been working at this for a long time now. So this is very much second nature. Um, and it's clear that you have thought very deeply about this. I'm curious about two things. Yeah. One, what do you think the value of an HDS education has been in this process? And then it looks really neat. What are, yeah. Can you talk about some of the failure or messiness? Yeah. It's two different things, but mm -hmm. um, I think it would be I really just, important for students to hear, and then we'll open it up sure. for questions. I was just with uh, um, somebody who recently graduated from the Divinity School, and we were talking and reflecting on the Masters in Divinity and our time at HDS. And I said, you know, it actually kind of freaks me out to think about my life without Divinity School. Like, like I can't talk. Like, what? I wouldn't know any of this. Like, that brings me almost tears. Ah. And foundational. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, these guys are thinking about going to divinity school because it's so, I think I, somebody recently, you, read the 136-page um, handbook that we put together for our students and was in tears herself because she said it's it's the one place where everything you've got it's whole it's nothing's been left out and so that connects to what you said which is this has not been a straight journey you know I I, I think one of the things I always fought for because I was an athlete I think you as an elite and I was a pretty darn good athlete is you know you have to know something about nutrition and you have to know something about your X's and O's, and you have to know something about, and I was a ski racer, so I had to connect to, to na I mean, nature was like a serious reality. You know, it'd be freezing cold or, or foggy, and you're ski racing from, you know, I remember ski racing from, like, you could be above the clouds, and then you went into the clouds as part of your race, and, you know, so I was, you know, nature was a reality, and something that I was in real relationship with, and so for me, I think one of the things I've always fought for is, is wholeness. Like, what is it, like, I think I've, I think I, I, th I think I felt whole when I was born. You know, I, I think I felt that. And then, um, you know, and then I was really injured. And, um, and then I think, you know, and then I was confused and I had wonderful parents. And I've, I've written about this, but, um, and it's coming out in my book, but I've written about sort of the experience of being parented by like a really driven father and a really loving mother. and you know, the fracturedness in my own being, and I sort of at 47 now have come whole circle back to putting my dismembered parts sort of back together. And I think that's something divinity school and here and sitting in circle and storytelling and being listened to with oceanic, spacious, awareness, loving presence, which is what, you know, gets taught here, 
you know, that was a way for me to reclaim and remember a quality of wholeness that is really important um, to me. And so that journey for me, if it's anything what you all are going through, like, you know, if you'd interviewed me 15 years ago as a massage therapist, and I'd graduated top of my class at a good school, and my parents were like, I mean, basically, like, you're rubbing people's bodies for money. Okay, like, I don't know how to say it any nicer. And I'm like, okay, that was really not nice. Um, but, you know, because they wanted me to be like a lawyer, a doctor, or something that they could say, but you're a massage therapist. Okay, like, this didn't register for them. But I knew, I, I, somewhere deep in me, I knew I needed to heal and heal other like that was and so I did that for seven years in a tiny little room you know and now I think what so like that was a piece of it and then there were other pieces of learning what it meant to be a visionary or a teacher or a leader or all these archetypes that I kept like leaning into and so it was seemed you know I think now at 47 it looks coherent but the journey along the way was really scary because it didn't seem so coherent and I think that's often a message I say to particularly to divinity school students is just don't lose the tether of your dignity, your humanity, your integrity, and your, you know, a longing that you have for something that might feel a little ineffable. Don't worry about it being, like to me, ineffable. Like it might be you can't articulate it yet, but there's a knowing that you have to trust and eventually you know, pursuing all those different realms, I think, does eventually lead. I mean, there's only one life we get. Like, that's been my attitude all along. It's like, hopefully by the end of my life, it'll make sense. <laughs> but I, I don't want to peak too soon. Like, why would I want to be great at 25? Like, I got a whole rest of, like, right? I don't know. That was something I think I learned as an athlete. Like, you don't peak too soon. You know, you, you, you're in it for the long haul. You stage it. You're disciplined. You're patient. And, uh, and life's a lot like, you know, one massive, you know, you really don't know the meaning of your life until the last day, because you don't. Because it all kind of makes sense only in the rear view mirror. What questions do you have? Get the hand. Sorry, I'm all the way back. Sure. Um, I'm Anna. I'm a first year MTS student here. And I just love the mission of your of Mindful Warrior and the um, student conference and I think it's such important work but it's work that I'm not seeing happening a lot in, in low-income communities and mm -hmm. I, I'm finding that like mindfulness is kind of becoming this thing that that only privileged people yeah and so that's something I'm really passionate about I'm from a low-income community in Mississippi yep so I'm just wondering how you see that like what the future of that looks like for low-income communities and what we can do to kind of spread that work to communities yeah so Anna was asking about spreading mindfulness to low-income communities who don't always have access. So first of all, thank you for the question. It feels honestly like the perfect question because um, I have seen, you know, very much when you see like Time Magazine, it's like the woman who looks exactly like me sitting like this, right? And as though this is mindfulness, which it really isn't, you know, to me, that's not mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is really being able to stabilize attention and allow awareness space to flow through you and learn how to see from a non-dual consciousness. We can unpack that whole thing, but that's, that's to me what it is, and it's a really important thing to know how to do. 
what has happened in my work is that with the, not so much with my corporate work yet, um, but with my students from the very beginning, because this work started in a um, an, an historically um, white, privileged institution, um, I said to the trustees, it's really important to me if we're going to do a leadership program, particularly they wanted to do it around reconciliation and healing, I said, that's fine, but we're definitely not going to use Harvard Business School case studies, which is the way they were headed. And I would like us to do work where we're affirmative for African Americans and Native Americans, full stop, because of our history in this country. Um, and so we've always, ha I've, we've always had Native American and African American students. We've always had um, African Americans on staff. And then we've always had 60% of our students are people of color or from underrepresented backgrounds. We've given away like $250,000 over uh, six years for uh, scholarships. So this is not a money-making entity. It's actually a transformational educational um, space. Uh, both in those two weeks and then broader for the schools. So to answer your question, I guess what I'm trying to say is we are doing, at least from my perspective, my vision has been to always tether this work um, to, lo to local organizations and young people. So I live in California now. Uh, we just applied for a $50,000 grant to, for like Boys and Girls Club and First Tee and Village Project and six local organizations to send one of their students and one of their adults to our program. So we're building capacity locally, uh, number one. Number two, um, other schools have learned about this work. And because I've been very clear from the get-go that Native American and African American peoples were going to be central in this, and not just their color of their skin or how they identify, but their beliefs, their knowing. That's why this belonging and respect, that is an indigenous knowing. You know, that's a deep knowing that's really, like, so for me, that's very important that it's not, again, a, a curriculum that's about white privilege or um, colonial uh, colonialism, but that it's, the, even the curriculum has been transformed by the young people who have come through. So it's a living curriculum, first of all. To, that's an important thing. My students graduate, and then they come back, because they then go off to these amazing schools, and they come back, and they're like, I've learned some things that you're not teaching yet. And I'm like, I, so I eat up my humble pie every year. And I keep growing and keep leaning in. Um, and so I think, I, I think what all I know is what I can do locally and in my organization. And I do not want to build an organization that looks just like me. Um, but I would love an organization that has some people like me and some people like, you know, just that kind of real diversity of opinion, belief, orientation, background, um, access, all that kind of thing. Um, and so that's what we're doing. And I believe that if those young people are truly affected by the work, then they will go into their communities. I'm trying to grow people to be teachers and to be leaders and to be healers in their own right and to see how this work will take up residence inside them and then how they will then be. To me, it's like, I, nobody needs more people who are expert on anything. What people need is like people who have embodied the teaching. And their being just exudes it, because then more people will want to learn from them. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm Rowan. Hi, Rowan. Um, I'm curious. It sounds like you learned a lot from your time and your experience here at HDS. And um, given what you were just saying about the value of the embodied and um, I'm curious if you have ideas or vision based on your work um, in your time since leaving HDS mm -hmm. of um, 
what might be useful for HDS to consider as an institution? Mm. Around embodiment, specifically. I mean, because I would say, first of all, I guarantee, I'm pretty certain HDS, even as much as I love it, is not doing the five core value thing that I just talked about. Um, I mean, I read the Harvard report that came out from the, from the college, right? They were looking at belonging. And I read that whole thing because I was like, yes. And then I was like, oh, shoot, they don't get it. Um, so I was like, well, maybe they'll hire me and we can talk, you know? Um, like they're, like they're looking at it very academically and disembodied and they don't understand the relationship between othering and belonging and inclusion and exclusion and lack of safety and safety and disrespect and you know like all, that whole thing and the way so number one for me um, is I've gotten to the place in my work where I'm very interested in working at the institutional level because I've seen having worked one-on-one -on -one with so many people that People get incrementally better, but then they go back into old institutions and old buildings and old, you know, consciousness, and it's tiring. So we need to um, really begin all of us to. I mean, part of the reason I'm writing this book is because I'd like to create a national conversation about those five core values and the brain. Everything I just said is the book, and and we need to have that conversation. Not just me, and not just ten of us, and not just divinity schools, but everybody. We've got to shift soon. Um, so that's number one, and I would welcome anybody from Harvard seeking my you know input on that. Truly, like. I mean, because I care about this place, but also I think that's the way forward. That's number one. Number two, I don't know, um, I don't know what's happening here or not happening here around embodiment. Um, but embodiment is like, you can't, I think it's really, I think ethics and embodiment are connected. Um, I think it's really hard to live an ethical, moral, just, or not even moral, I just think ethics and embodiment are really connected because um, you need, embodiment has to do with knowing, you know, like knowing in an ontological way something other than just a rational thinking, right? So, you know, I think what I would say is probably there's a need here somehow, I don't, I'm not sure, but, you know, to continue to uh, help us graduate students to come in a greater relationship to their own bodies and then to their own embodiment and to their own knowing. And all of that is also connected to a radical kind of trust that um, that's the other thing like we could have a long conversation about. I'm from a long line of healers and medical people. And um, really, the, the, the Western medical system still looks at the body as a machine. And so when something breaks, you go in and you fix it and you fix it in the knee or you fix it, you know, in the lung. But the lung is definitely not related to the skin in Western medicine. It is in every other mode of healing. Those, you know, the second skin, I mean, the second lung is your skin. So, but that's not taught and that's not understood. So when I'm talking about embodiment, I'm also talking about like how we understand the role our bodies play and how wise they are, and how capable we are actually of healing. But we so rarely give ourselves the chance to heal because we assume we don't know how to heal and we need, some of us believe we need an expert to come, you know, so that's, it's a long conversation. I don't know. Does any of this make any sense? <laughs> okay. We have, we have time for one more question and then we'll, we'll, we'll put a close and um, 
Cornelia and I will be hanging around just for you know about 10, 15 minutes if you have other questions. But we can say thank you, and I know people have to be on their way. And um, but yes, you know Clarissa. Actually, creating a company. Yes. Huh. Um, yeah. So when I was here, I was I was trying to create a not-for-profit. So I had all these ideas about what it was going to be, and you know, I worked with Dudley Rose some on that, and there was a vision and a mission, and then I was going to create. So there was a lot of work that I did around that, um, but uh, I didn't. In truth, the simplest way I would say it is I think the work to do in divinity school around a company is to get really clear on your own purpose and mission and to do your own inner work because actually just pay lawyers. That's what I had to do. I mean, it's expensive later on, but there's just legal work. You know, companies are kind of simple. You kind of just got to get the paperwork done um, from, from a, just building a company. Like from the paperwork side, it's legal. Um, from from for everything else is about how are you going to uh, embody and believe in and grow you know the thing that you are trying to build and and can you actually get other people inspired and alongside you and 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 in truth it's just a ton of hard work and a lot of ignominy like you're in the trenches for years long before you even sit in a chair like this you know you're just like. It's not pretty, um, but uh, and and I didn't. I took classes at Harvard Business School, but they weren't on like how to build a company. Um, I was taking courses on um, management of the family business. Um, so I don't think this this. I th I think actually, in truth, like even as I hear myself say that, in a way, this is a better place to come if you're an entrepreneur than Harvard Business School, because like. Just hire a lawyer to like build the company, but to really know what you're going to create and how you're going to create it, and to be like somebody who's got something powerful, you, that takes inner work and that takes time to have a vision and to tend it and to have hopefully a bunch of your classmates be like, yeah, that sucks, and then you're like, oh shoot, and then you're like, you know, it, you know, a lot hits the hits the hits the floor as you create something, and then eventually something emerges. Can we say thank you so much for your generosity, sure. for your vision, thank you. Thank you. for being with us tonight. And um, I'm sure a couple of you have more questions. I know some people are meeting with Cornelia tomorrow for interviews in the morning. Um, she has time later in the afternoon for informational interviews and, and to learn more about opportunities, possibly working with Core Leadership California. Um, she's got some openings starting at 4 tomorrow, so if you're interested, um, do send me an email or speak to me tonight and we can try and get you slotted in. But um, we're really happy that you all came and yeah, thank, you thank you so much for this really right. powerful. Thank you. Work, so.